I'm going to repeat this a few times. This is really what I, I want you to try uh, and, and get from this morning. Money is the closest thing we have to God. Money is the closest thing we have to God. Money competes with God in a way that nothing else can. Money is the closest thing we have to God. Money competes with God in a way that nothing else can. Three points. Point number one, money can be divisive. Let me show you how. This kind of sounds strange that uh, something like money could be divisive, but I'll show you what I mean, and I think you'll agree. Money has the power to divide what God has united. When a couple get married, they come to the front, and they stand with the minister, Steve Gwynn, performed a, a wedding yesterday in America, and um, he would have done this at some stage at the end. He will say something like, what God has united, let no man separate. And this comes directly out of the Bible. It comes, it's Jesus' words. It's quoting Jesus about marriage that's saying, God has put two people together. Uh, let no man separate that. There's a unity from God there. The Old Testament prophet Malachi says it just bluntly. He says, God hates divorce. Yet, in a study entitled, Examining the Relationship Between Financial Issues and Divorce, Sonia Britt says, listen to this, arguments about money are by far the top predictor of divorce. And you might go, well, that's true of a young couple or a young married couple, or, you know, but it's not true. You know, once you're married, you've gone past the seven-year itch, you've gone, you know, you've established your marriage, and you'll be Okay. Um, there's a 50-year-old couple, uh, sorry, recently a very old couple um, went to go put gas in the car and, and uh, bought a lotto ticket, um, and then they, that night they found out that they'd won the lotto. They, they won about $7 million. Uh, they paid off some family debts. They uh, were able to uh, give their grandkids college uh, tuition. And then after about 50 years of marriage, what happened? They separated. Married for 50 years, money for a year or two, separation. So it's not just for the young, it's not just for the young couples. Money can be divisive for anyone. So in a way, the greatest cause of separating what God has united is money. But money is not itself evil. No, don't hear me saying that, okay? Um, Obviously, it's not the paper, it's not the color um, that the money that's the money is printed in. It's not the faces that is printed on the paper. It's not the numbers, how many zeros or what's before the zero on the note. It's none of that. It's not the red or the black that's on your bank statement. Um, it's not how much you have in your bank account. None of that is what makes money so divisive. What makes money so divisive is our hearts and how they feel about money. Um, that's why Jesus taught. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So here's a test to see where your treasure is. Um, pull up your bank statement and look at what you're putting your money into. That's what Jesus, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. How do you know if money is a big issue for you? Pull up your bank statement, find where your treasure is. Look at where the money is pointing. Do it. This is something we heard. I've heard this since I was this big. No one's ever stopped to go, hey, Mark, actually do it. Get your bank statement and, and do it. Figure out what you're putting all your money into. And then, then ask yourself the question, do I actually believe that, that, that I value that? And I, I'll tell you, for one, there'd be a couple of things I'd go, no, I don't value that. I need to figure out how to kind of make the shift. 
Ask yourself a question like this, and, and none of this, I mean, you, you, you guys know none of this is going to be laden with guilt or condemnation. Um, we're not going to take up a special offering at the end. Uh, but ask yourself as you look through this, how much of these are going straight towards gospel initiatives? How much of what you spend goes towards gospel initiatives? Whether it's helping, whether it's giving to the local church, whether it's giving to missionaries, whether it's giving to justice or mercy projects, how much is pointing directly to gospel initiatives? And that can be a test. It will tell you about your money, tell you about your treasures. Money can be divisive. It has the power to divide what God has united. That's number one. Number two, money is the closest thing we have to God. Money competes with God in a way that nothing else can. This is number two. Money offers security. C.S. Lewis wrote this. One of the dangers of having a lot of money is that you may be quite satisfied with the kinds of happiness money can give and so fail to realize you need your need for God. If everything seems to come simply by signing checks, you may forget that you are at every moment totally dependent on God. You can imagine C.S. Lewis trying to, uh, he wasn't really wealthy and then until he, he, he wrote a few of his books and it became famous and then the money started ro- rolling in and he had to try to figure out what he's going to do with this. And you can imagine him sitting there uh, f- trying to be philosophical about what is he going to do with all of this and he's writing checks and realizes that he's really not even thinking about his need for God. And, and if, you, if you think about us and our lives, how many of us have a little piece of plastic card and, you know, Someone puts numbers into a machine, and we just tap the machine, and we're all even. And in that moment, you think about how much time do you have to think about how totally dependent you are in God between here and there and here again. But you are, and I am, fundamentally, ultimately. And C.S. Lewis understood this. So why does someone wake up in the morning... This is C.S. Lewis just kind of taking his thought through. Why does someone wake up in the morning and realize, you know, I feel like my relationship with God is retarded. It feels dry. It might even feel dead. I don't know where God is. Because somewhere long ago, we stopped realizing our total dependence on Him. If I lived knowing how dependent I was with God, there wouldn't be, as Anne said earlier, a moment in a moment where I wasn't living with gratitude and celebration, knowing that God is keeping my heart beating, God is keeping air in my lungs, God is keeping my family fed, God is keeping a roof over our heads, God is keeping the birds flying, God is keeping the grass watered. God, there wouldn't be a, I, would walk, I would be walking around in constant awe, because in every moment of every moment, God is working in my life, He's supplying my needs, He's being good to me. And I forget about this, but if I didn't, I could never say, where is God? So C.S. Lewis is saying that our spiritual condition uh, may be caused by having too much money, by just being too comfortable. It's not even that sinister. It's not even that you pursued some great sin. It's not even that you pursued any sin. Your life just got comfortable. You just had too much, and you forgot A very wealthy friend uh, was preaching in a church, and he took a briefcase with him onto the stage and put it at the front of the pulpit, and he put it like this, and then he preached for about half an hour on how dangerous money is 
Uh, and he could speak about that because he, he, he is exceedingly wealthy. And he's, he used this phrase, it was kind of the takeaway phrase, you know, having a lot of money is like dancing with the devil. You, you don't want it. You don't want to do it. It's, it's dangerous. It's, it's, every day is difficult. It brings on burdens that you can't bear. Um, it's a terrible thing. And he was absolutely right, theologically and by experience. He could talk about it. And yet, you know what? Every single one of us at the end of the sermon, do you know what we wanted? The briefcase. We wanted to be the enigma. Yeah, okay, mate, I know it's hard and that most people can't handle it, but let me try. Give me a chance to dance with the devil and I'll show him my moves. Right? We long for that. We long for this, the, the security that money can give. We want it. The reason why we rely on money is because it promises to resolve the things that we worry about. So here's some things we worry about. Uh, where, will I, where will I live? Where will I travel? What clothes do I need to be seen in? What subscriptions do I need to have? What restaurants do I need to try? Do I have the right gear for all my hobbies? What schools or activities do my kids need to do? Am I up to date with the new tech? How will I be able to retire comfortably? Maybe that's not, we don't, we don't often think those questions as directly as I've stated them, but they're the questions of our hearts. They're the questions our hearts keep asking us about. Every, time, every September, I know I've got to hold my heart because Apple does a presentation on a new iPhone and I, I'm convinced that I need a new iPhone. And then my son reminds me that I need a new iPhone and there's a bunch of iPhone haters over here. Uh, I'm sure Samsung or someone else does something similar. Um, but there's this new, you know, new tech or a, a house or a, you're falling behind, you own a home yet. Once you own a home, do you own a, 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 a what's, what's your retirement like? You know, do your kids have everything their friends have? And you don't think directly, but you feel directly. And money says you can resolve all of that if you have enough of it. That's why we long for it, because it gives us the security to resolve the things we worry about. So here's a test. Um, if you're like this, answer this question to see if, if you look to uh, money for some security. Here's a question. If you had all the money in the world, would you be doing what you're doing now? If you say no, don't put up your hand, please, and don't say no, because then I can't say the rest. Then it'll sound like I'm being rude to you. Just think about it in your own head, in your own heart. Then I can't be speaking to you directly right now. But if you say no, then you're likely doing it for the security that money brings. If you say yes, then you're likely doing it because you believe that's what God has made you to do. I loved Andreas' testimony, especially because of this morning. If the testimony was the other way, which it could be, you know, he could be saying, you know, I've had this job that's been inconsistent and God's given me a job that's going to be consistent and my, bread, and my family's now going to have bread every week and we'd all celebrate. And that would be really, truly wonderful. It would be. But Andreas, you know, I believe that it's better to have bread every day than a croissant every now and then. And so I've had this kind of safe financial life. And I'm stepping out, becoming a contractor. And I'm freaked out, but it's what God's leading me into. Wasn't it an amazing faith statement? Yet he can say, I'm doing what God has called me to do. It doesn't offer security. And it requires faith. But there's nothing else I'd rather do. I know, I know uh, that he's lost a few nights sleep. It hasn't come easy. Faith's not easy. Walking over the edge and trusting God's not easy. 
And you might look at it and go, oh, well, maybe contractors make more, or maybe, I, I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, but the reality of having to take that step of faith, God, I trust you. It's leaving security to put our financial faith in God's hands. It's remarkably difficult. So I commend you, Andreas, and for everyone else that wasn't rigged, although it fits perfectly. Jesus taught us not to worry about the thing, about things because the Father knows what we need. In that is such a loving commendation. Jesus is saying, you look at the birds of the air, look at the fields, look how they're dressed, look how they're fed. And Jesus says, don't worry about things. Do you know, first of all, do you hear what he's saying? He's going, worries and needs are real. He's saying, I'm not an idealist king, Lord of all, creator of everything that's just saying there's no need to worry, there's no, need to, there's no, no such thing as worry and need. He's saying, of course there's things to worry and there's things that you need. Of course there are. Oh, you understand me, Jesus. Yes, I understand you. You've got lots of worries and lots of needs. Oh, but your Father knows what you need and He will supply everything that you need doesn't mean he'll supply everything you think you need doesn't mean he'll supply everything you want he means he'll supply everything that's good for you and sometimes good is scary and sometimes good is less than or different to what we would want and sometimes it's more than what we would want but Jesus goes let God worry about your worries you trust him So money offers security, security that only God can ultimately give. Do you see how money is the closest thing there is to God? How easily we can replace God with money. Money is in my wallet. I can grab it. I can put my hands on it. But God, I can't. I can't control him. I can't grab him. I can't make me do my work. So I'll turn to money. It's easier. It's easier to trust. Money is the closest thing we have to God. Money competes with God in a way that nothing else can. Number three, last point, money is blinding. In other, uh, actually, more accurately, greed is blinding. Now, up to this point, I imagine that you and I are a choir. We're all going, yeah, amen, yep, that's true. Mark's not speaking to me, he must be speaking to the person next to me. You know, and if you're brave enough, you'd give them a little bit of a bump. I hope you, know, I hope you took a note of that one. Um, so there's a big chance that we're all, um, we're all sitting like the choir. But here's the problem, and it's a problem for me too. An old pastor who, who's pastored for about four decades, hundreds, probably thousands of wealthy people, says an interesting thing. He's had all kinds of people come and confess all kinds of sins to him. But in about 40 years of pastoring thousands of people, mostly wealthy, there's one thing he's never heard anyone come and ask for help with. What do you think that is? Greed. It's the one sin that no one has ever asked for help with. Why? Because no one thinks they're greedy. If you're an adulterer, you know that you're an adulterer. You're not blind to it. If you're a stealer, you know that you're a stealer. You're not, you're not blind to it. If you're a liar you know that you're a liar. But how do you know that you're greedy? You only want good things. You only want what's best for your family. It's not like you want things so that you can afford a life of being rude to others. 
it's almost impossible to discern if you're greedy or not, but I'm going to try to help us discern if we are, and, and I'm going to ask us to probably step away from the quiet pews and probably suggest we should cross the line and go, it's more likely that we're all greedy. Not all of you are, though. And I'm not telling you who is. <laughs> you can work that out for yourself. Here's some research data that came out. Data that is always coming out of America. Here's some data that's come out of Australia, how good that is. Um, and it's come out this year, so it's really helpful from a crindle. And it goes like this. Those who are over 74 worry about finances half as much as those under 24. Now, both groups could say, what do you have to worry about? The young'uns can say, you know, you probably don't have long left. What do you have to worry about? The older folk can look at the young'uns and say, you're young, you've got your whole life ahead of you. What have you got to worry about? Both of them couldn't understand each other's worries. But the over 74s worry half as much as the under 24s about money in Australia this year. But those under 24 years find it five times harder to trust God completely. Those under 24 worry twice as much and find it five times harder to trust God completely. Have you ever thought something like this? If I had ABC, um, then I would give XYZ. If I just had this much, then I'd give that much. Have you ever thought any, anything like that? If I won the lottery, I know what I'd do with it. I'd give it to XYZ. Have you ever thought that? My first, job as a, uh, my first job for a church I earned about, it was less than, but let's just say about $100 a month. Uh, a guy in the church broke his leg and there was no insurance, no coverage. He had to pay for it himself. And I remember giving the whole $100 towards him. Was, God did this wonderful miracle in his family and God supplied all the needs. But I remember that was a month's wage. It was more than a month's wage at the time. Then I, I moved to California and, and eventually got a job at a church and was, I was earning $500 a month. And now I earn more than $500 a month. But the question is, would I still give as easily, would I give a month's wage? Has my giving kept up with my getting? Would I, I and I, I, I'll, I'll solve the riddle for you. No. It would not be as easy to give a month's wage as it was when I was earning $100 a month. I didn't have money for food. I didn't have money for boarding. I didn't have money. I had to ride a bicycle at times because I didn't have money for petrol. I'll tell you a, a, a horrible but true story. Sometimes I put up my hand just to do things for the church because there was this kind of scheme that if you did something for the church, you could clock your kilometers and then they would reimburse you for the kilometers, but they'd give you a little bit more than the fuel because you also used your tires and things like that. So it's like a maintenance cost. So if I could go pick up the donuts, I could get like five bucks out of it. There were desperate times, but hand wide open. Now... Give a month's wage, someone breaks their leg, give them a month's wage. Mark Tapping's receiving muscles have become a lot better than his giving muscles. They haven't kept equal. So, Here's the statistics, and I'm not going to show you it, but there's, there's this kind of 100-year, they show that this 100-year um, 
movement of technology and what people had and how little they had 100 years ago and then how it's moved. And basically the stat goes to show this, that we alive today, but even the younger ones, there's this generation, 24 and under, has ne- there's never been a generation that has had more than them. There also hasn't been a generation that's more worried about having enough and finding it harder to trust God than that's alive today. So no generation has ever had more than them, ever. But of all the generations alive today, there isn't one that worries more and finds it harder to trust God. Having more does not help us have faith. Statistics say that having more makes it harder to trust God. Why? Because C.S. Lewis said, when you have enough, you forget that you need God. Okay, so why are we blind to our greed? It's just a simple question. Why are we blind to it? This is why, because we usually compare to people who have more than us. Right? I can't be greedy. Let me tell you about my friend. Let me tell you about their holiday. Let me tell you about what they buy their kids. Let me tell you about what they got their wife for their anniversary. Let me tell you about what they do. Let me tell I can't possibly be greedy. I never, you know, I definitely don't compare my life to, to people who, who, who have less than me. You know, uh, I'm, I'm not going to give specific examples, but, but it, it's true of us. How do you know that you're greedy? Okay, here's a question. Here's just a couple of questions. How do you know if you're greedy? Number one, number question, number one, uh, question number one. We've been here before, but let me ask it again. Are you made to do your job? Are you made for it? Tim Keller says, materialism has a way to get us to choose a job you're not necessarily made to do or helps anyone simply because it gets you money. In other words, if I don't feel some connection to the way that God has made me and what I get to put out into the world 40 hours a week, there's no connection between the gifts that God has given me and what I get to put in and beauty into the world through my work. Then why am I doing it? And, and the suggestion is it could be, not, not, it's not the only answer, but an answer could be that materialism means I just need to do something for money. That's all it really is. Number two, are you willing to consider if your job hurts others or the environment, or do you uh, turn a blind eye to it? It's an interesting time that we live in. I was out with a bunch of, of men yesterday morning early, and coffees arrived at the table. I believe they would all be older than me, maybe generationally older than me, maybe some close. But I, it was interesting as one immediately, first thing, picked up, looked under the cup to see if it was biodegradable. In other words, we can't enjoy these if, it's, if we're adding, if we're ruining the environment. Coffee habits have changed. Cafe owners are being held accountable about where they put, what they're putting their coffee into. It's interesting. It was wonderful. It was quite amazing. We as Christians can ask ourselves this question. We know that we've got the, the backing of the Creator. We know that the Father says that He'll provide all of our needs. We know that He's given us gifts to work in creation to make this world better, to help other people. And we can ask this question about our jobs. Is my job helping people or hurting them? 
Is it adding to the environment or taking from the environment? But sometimes we don't want to ask that question. It's a question worth asking. Why wouldn't we ask that question might point to the fact that we want our money. We want our income, right? Let me keep moving because it's gone incredibly quiet. How do we deal with our hearts? We must learn to see something more beautiful and more meaningful. There was, um, in our church in California, the church we came from, that we had an arts exhibition and auction. And one of the pieces that was getting a lot of bids was, to me, really ugly. Um, And I shared that with my friend who was a fashion designer. And she looked at me with disgust and horror. And she simply said to me, you don't understand art. (laughs) She was entirely correct. I don't. I either like it or I don't like it. I don't understand it. But if you want to appreciate art, someone has to teach you to see its beauty. Otherwise, like me, you won't be able to tell the difference between something that's worth a million dollars and something that's worth ten dollars. It will be based on, "Eh, I like it, I don't like it. There's nothing in this world that anyone has painted that I'd spend over X amount for. But if you get an appreciation of art, you can look at something for hours. And you can be drawn to the lines and the colors, and I'm now talking out of my league, so I'll just stop. (laughs) But you understand the concept, right? So how do, you, how do you help your heart get over greed? You've got to be taught to see something far more beautiful and meaningful. Otherwise, money is going to be the most delightful thing you can. It's immediate, it's quick, it's achievable, it's reachable. If you work hard enough, you can get enough of it to have the life that you want. Why wouldn't you? There must be something more beautiful than that, and you've got to see it. And this is how grace works. Grace helps us, the grace of God helps us and teaches us to see the beauty of what Jesus has done for us be able to look upon it and to be able to see it as something that's so meaningful that it eventually affects our hearts. Not immediately, but eventually. Sometimes immediately, but rarely. Affects our hearts. So we look at this story that I've read, and Jesus is at the temple, and he's watching people giving. They come, they come in, and he's probably sitting there with his disciples, and they're coming close to him, and they're putting their money in. And this is a gift offering. This is not their, their uh, you know, um, we'll, uh, on the giving one, I'll t- explain this, but on average, over a three-year period, uh, the Jews would have given about a little bit over 20% of their income, not 10%. They would have given to three different offerings. One of them was every three years. One of them was every year. And the other one was every year or every two years. It was agrarian culture. You can't just put in a monthly wage, right? But it worked out if you divided what they gave by the three years, it worked out that actually Jews gave about a little bit over 20% of their income to the temple. This was just a free gift. People could come and just put it in the offering just because they loved the temple and they wanted to do it. So Jesus is sitting there and he's watching this and he sees the widow put in this money and something captures him. I, I imagine that Jesus is probably quite moved. I, you know, sometimes when I'm moved, whenever Josh says the name, when he's preaching and he says Jesus, he like gets all teary-eyed and, you know, you can't, he can barely talk about Jesus without his heart being physically moved. Uh, how are you when you, you know, when something moves you, you know, that kind of quivery, shaky voice, um, I imagine this moves Jesus, and he, he looks at this, and it surprises him and amazes him, and he connects to this, and he grabs everyone's attention. And here's a widow, number one. That means she has no provider. She has no security. She can't work in her culture. It doesn't allow her to, in that way, to earn an income. 
and she doesn't have a husband to provide for her. So she has no means of getting an income. She might have a son. We don't know if she does or not, so that would be her last resort. But it, it seems like she's poor, so if she does have a son, he's not doing a very good job of providing for her. Jesus says she's poor. That's the situation. But she has this relationship with God that has changed everything for her. And she's coming to the temple, the place where God's presence dwells. And she's going to put something in, these two copper coins, that's worth a dollar fifty. Dollar fifty. Who's got a dollar fifty? Everyone here can put a dollar. That means you've got more than what the widow had. You're in a better position to be generous than she is. And Jesus looked at what the the rich were putting in, and he 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 recognized that both of these were gifts. He didn't undermine that. He he didn't say you ought to, you should, you must. He recognized that both people, both groups of people were putting in gifts into the offering, but he could see something different in the heart of the widow. He says, the widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. They were all coming, the wealthy were coming, and they were making an attempt. It looked good. They were at temple. They were putting something in. It looked good. No one would have a problem with it. If you were an accountant, you would prefer the rich people to the poor people, to this poor widow. If you were in the temple, you would have preferred what the rich people were, uh, if you ran the, the temple, you would have preferred what the rich people were putting in to what the widow put in. But Jesus looked at both of their hearts, and he saw that the rich people were hedging their bets. And try and listen carefully to what I'm going to say, because I think this is what's going on in the heart. Jesus is saying, you love your money so much that you bring it to the temple and you share some of it with God who you also love. She loves God so much that she brings all she has and lays it before Him. Those are two different heart attitudes. You love your money so much that you share some of it with God whom you also love, just like you do with your children, just like you do with your friends, just like you do with your wife, just like you do, etc., etc., etc. You also bring some and give it to God. It is a gift, and it is out of love, and it is worship, but the thing you love the most is that thing in your hand that you're giving, you're putting down. But she is different. The thing in her hand means nothing. It's just a vehicle to demonstrate her all-out devotion to the Lord. And, he ge- and Jesus says she's given all she has. She's given more. She doesn't hedge her bets. She gives everything she is to God. In other words, it, it, it's the feeling is, I wished I had more to give you, but this is all I have here. You are beautiful. She longed for God. And Jesus loved this. Why do you think he loved this? I'll tell you why he loved it. Don't, don't guess. Let me tell you. I think he loved this because it, looked, it pointed straight at him. I think he loved what the widow did and pointed it out because it, it was like a living metaphor of what he was going to do. It was pointing to the grace of what he was doing, that Jesus made himself nothing for his love. Joel, I wonder if you can throw up the... the, the we, sang a, we sang something this morning... This, this caught me, my, my sole devotion, my only focus to worship you. My life surrendered, my heart abandoned for more of you. You know the only person that can say that? The only person who can say that is Jesus to you. 
my life surrendered for you. That's why Jesus loved what the widow was doing. It was an exact metaphor of the cross that the king of kings who lacked nothing, who had everything, who lived abundantly in glory and majesty and might, gave it all up to come into the world of the widow and to lay his life down in the place of the widow. Why? Because he loved her. He didn't hedge his bets. He gave his all, surrendered his life, laid his heart down because he longed for the widow. Because he longed for you and he longed for me. My sole devotion, my only focus to worship you. Obviously, Jesus doesn't worship you. My heart abandoned for more of you. You and I cannot say that we want more of God. He can't give more. He didn't hold anything back. He gave it all at the cross. He lived and died in your place and mine. And Christ has given it all. He's laid it down. And he says, I have laid it down for more of you. That's what he's saying. Don't worry about what you'll eat or what you'll drink. Give the Father more of your heart. Give him your security. Let him take care of you. you, you couldn't, God couldn't possibly give you any more of him. He's given you everything already. And why? The King of Glory gave us His all because we were His treasure. You must see the, uh, how confusing this is. That those who are nothing and don't have anything that the King needs are called and invited to come and bring themselves, their lives, their barrenness to Him. But we're told that actually he comes to us and says, you are my treasure. I love you. I am going to give you everything. There's not a story like this in all the world. There's no religion in the world that says God comes, makes you his treasure, lays his life down, wins your heart back, and then says, come, to lear- come and learn to make me yours. Come and learn to trust me. Come and learn to be dependent on me. Come and learn to be generous. And that's how grace teaches us. It doesn't give us a number. It doesn't give us a law. It says, get to understand what Christ has done for you. Get to understand how generous he was for you, that he laid down his life for you, that he left the glories of heaven, that he made himself nothing, that he was rich, but he became poor so that you could be rich. When you get that, not in your head, but when you get that in your heart, you'll be free to open up your hand, to open up your bank account, to open up your possessions, to open up your job. Say, God, I'm like the widow. This is Two copper coins. I put it before you. How do you want it to? Use, how do you want to use it? It's all yours. I'm going to give you three practices to help you, and then read a C.S. Lewis quote and give it to Malcolm and Lizzie to lead us in communion. Poor Malcolm and Lizzie. First time they're leading in communion, and it's on a week we talk about money. Good luck. What practices can you keep? I'm just going to give you three real quick. Keep to point your life towards the beauty of Christ. How can you help yourself point towards the beauty of Christ? Number one, contentment. 
I mean this very literally, and these are practices that Nas and I are not only talking about, we are, we are literally doing and learning all the time. Through prayer and reflection, ask God to help your heart arrive at a place where you honestly believe you have enough and don't desire more. That's contentment. That God, through His Spirit and grace, leads you to a place where you can arrive and you can honestly believe that you have enough and you don't need more. Number two, simplicity. Through prayers and discernment, ask God to help you get your life to a place where you can honestly say you couldn't live more simply. We're, we're working through this. I mean, we, it feels like we're always working through this, but we're definitely working through this right now. Asking ourselves the question, what about our lives can we cut out? What's unnecessary? How can we live more simply? Why? This is the, the point is generosity, right? How do we get our pla- ourselves to a place of being generous, not greedy? Number three, generosity. Through prayer and giving, ask God to help you get your life to a place where you can honestly say you couldn't give any more away. God will never judge us like an accountant would, look at percentages and numbers. He's looking at our hearts, and these are practical ways, and I mean to say through prayer, ask God. Because if you just do this by yourself, you'll be missing the whole point. And you'll be an exercise of self-righteousness, and you'll look down on others because they're not, they haven't become as generous as you. But if God changes your heart you will feel for those who haven't become as generous as you because you will understand in your heart of hearts the freedom with money that you can see others don't have, they don't enjoy. They're still living in, its, in the shackles. You'll never judge someone like that. You'll maybe pray for them. Someone said it earlier, and I promise, I think it was Anton, I promise you it's true that God answers our prayers. And if you pray for these three things, God will through a journey. If you're married with your spouse, don't do it alone. That would be unloving. Practice uh, contentment, simplicity, generosity. God will will change uh, your economic lives in some way, shape, or form that will liberate you and free you to enjoy the gospel in a way that you don't uh, maybe right now. And it comes with freedom and joy, not burden or harshness. Let me read C.S. Lewis. Here's, here's just a wise, a wise word from the man himself. Not Jesus, sorry, C.S. Lewis, and then I'll pray. C.S. Lewis said, I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. If our giving habits do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we want to do but cannot do because our giving expenditures exclude them. In other words, God has made us so generous that there's some things we can no longer do because we gave the money away. 